Hello, my name is Rivi Frankel. Welcome to Torat Imecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today we will be studying Sefer Zechariah, Perak Yud Gimel. Yesterday, in chapter 12, we learned about Hashem elevating the house of David and Yehuda, while at the same time paying retribution to the people who besieged and harmed Jerusalem. Today, too, in our short chapter, we will be discussing Hashem saving B'nai Israel, but more for, from spiritual threats than physical ones. He will purify Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Hashem will eliminate Avodazara, worship of idols, sin, and false prophets, and we will see destruction being used as a tool for rebuilding. Like we've seen over the past few chapters, there will be a number of places where we see Egypt and the Exodus story paralleled in this chapter. Pasuk Aleph, verse 1. And on that day, there will be a makor. We're not going to translate what makor means. Literally, it means source. Um, but we'll come back to what a source is. But there will be a source that is opened for the house of David and to the residents of Jerusalem. For chatat, for sin, and for nida which is ritual impurity connected to a woman's menstruation process. It is also possible to translate this as for purging and cleansing. But let's take a look at the literal meaning of these words and see if we can't understand what this very first Pasuk, this very first verse is telling us. The chapter starts off as if it's in the middle of a story. On which day are we talking about? Commentators like the Ibn Ezra see this as another sign that Zechariah is no longer speaking directly to the people of his time, but future generations. On that day refers to the time of the coming of Mashiach, according to the Ibn Ezra. What does it mean when the verse says that there will be a source that is opened for Jerusalem and Beit David, the house of David? The opening of this source can be taken literally as a water source. There are very few springs of water in Jerusalem. Hashem will open a source of water that will purify the Jewish people, either in a physical way, like Nida, ritual impurity of a woman, when and shortly after her period, or spiritually for someone who sins, or perhaps both. Maybe this is a reference to the Gihon Spring, the only actual flowing spring in Jerusalem to this day, where Shlomo and then subsequent kings of Yehuda were anointed. This can also be seen as a figurative spring, that Hashem will figuratively open a spring and sprinkle the people with water. But it seems that across the board, the commentators all agree that there is some connection between this source that is being opened and water. Why does the verse specifically mention chatat sin and nida? We can translate it like we said earlier, as cleaning and purging. But Rashi, based on Targum Yonatan, gives us a different suggestion. He compares it to the mix of ash and blood. When a sin offering is brought, the blood of a sacrifice is mixed with ashes from the fire of the Mizbeach, the altar. Another place where we see blood mixed with ashes ritually is in the preparation for the mixture of the red heifer the one that removes the impurity of death. 
One suggestion as to why a woman in Nida becomes impure ritually is because during each menstrual cycle, there is a small amount of mourning of life that takes place. These two types of impurity represent spiritual impurity that we cause, sin, and impurity that is out of our control, and ironically, one that is part of life, death. Hashem will remove the pain of both, sin and death, things that we can control and things that we cannot. Hashem will continue to purge the negative with the removal of idol worship and false prophets. We will also see this theme of Hashem purging, although not with water, but rather with fire, as the chapter continues. Verses 2 through 6 discuss the removal of Avodazara, idol worship, as well as false prophets. On that day also, says Hashem Tzvakot, I will erase the names of the idols from the land, and they shall not be spoken or mentioned anymore. And I will also make sure that the prophets, meaning the false prophets, and the Ruach Teuma, this unclean or rather impure wind is removed from the land. Notice that again, we have tuma, we have some sort of impurity being removed. The same that we saw in verse number one. So if anybody comes to give prophecy, false prophecy, Thereafter, his own mother and father, who brought him into this world, will say to him, You shall die, for you have lied in the name of God. And then they will follow through with that action. There will be no tolerance. This is used as imagery, not necessarily as something realistic. But the idea that your own family, the person who brought you into this world, will no longer tolerate false prophecy. And eventually, even the false prophet himself will eventually recognize and admit to his mistakes and his false prophecy. Unfortunately, however, it is not just false prophets and idols that will be destroyed, but also, again, using the imagery of sheep and shepherds, the leaders and the actual people of B'nai Israel, of the Jewish people, that will be destroyed as well. As we are told in Pasuk Chet, verse 8, Throughout the land, says Hashem, two-thirds shall perish, shall die, and one-third shall survive. And what will happen to that last third, the remaining surviving third? Pasuk Tet, verse 9, And I will bring that third to fire. And I will melt it as one smelts silver. And I will test them as one tests gold. He will call out my name and I will answer him. Him referring to the third, that group of people. I'm going to say they're my nation. And they're going to say, He is Hashem, my God.
We saw earlier in chapter 3 that Yoshua, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, was called a fire starter in the heavenly court. God held back the Satan from accusing Yoshua in this court because he had already been through the fire. Here we see this image of fire again and its ability to refine a material. Not only will the Jewish people survive the fire, as we saw with Yehoshua, but we will come out of it refined and better for it. We can compare this to the times in Egypt, when according to the Mechilta on Shemot chapter 13, verse 17, only one-fifth of the Jews actually left Egypt. The Midrash in Shemot Rabbah says this is because there were sinners who could not give up their life in Egypt for a life of freedom and following God. The one-third is going to be the one who takes the initiative despite everything. In Egypt, they cried because it says in the text that they had a kotzer ruach, some sort of, of compression of their breath, which perhaps means anxiety. But it seems like they did not cry to Hashem for help specifically. They just cried out. But here we have a tikkun, a fixing of that generation. There are going to be people who see that Hashem is God, despite or maybe because of their suffering. Suffering can often give people a new perspective, one that is sometimes needed. But often that perspective comes at a high price. We see the theme over and over again in Zechariah. If you return to me, says God, I will return to you. And here again, this one third that recognizes God. What does God say? They will be my nation. They will be my people. And I will be their God. I bless us that we are able to hear the messages of the prophets and cling to God and call out to God and call God our God and therefore him be able to call us his people without the need to be refined in the fire. Thank you for studying together. Li'ilu Nishmat, Riva Schwab, Rifa, at Alexander Sender.